to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So let's live our best lives one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. Hi, everybody. We are so glad that you're here today. Welcome to episode 34 of the Life Lessons podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing pretty well. I know I've mentioned before that I have horrendous 1976 bathrooms. Yeah. With a Harvest Gold shower and a glitter top bathroom vanity. Since my husband's not working right now, I decided it'd be the perfect time to do a bathroom remodel. His trade, he's a tile setter by trade. So, I mean, what better person to have available with nothing but time on his hands to remodel my bathroom? Awesome. So I'm getting really excited, but it's a challenge doing a project with your Oh, trust, trust me, I know. <laughs> So, yeah, we'll we'll see how this all goes. We have different, very different ideas of how things are supposed to go down to where or if we're going to put a trim piece of tile in the shower. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, we're doing our big remodel outside right now and I'm at the beach. I took a two week beach trip. You know, you know that <laughs> the listeners may not. But one week was with my family. It was amazing, by the way. There were 12 of us here and then 15 members of my niece's boyfriend's now fiance's family came down. So there were, what is that? 27 of us on the beach. They had a surprise engagement. So then I stayed, I stayed a couple days before they all came and five days after they left for a total of two weeks. So now did you know that they were all coming down? Was this pre-planned? Yeah. We all, everybody knew except for her and one of the little girls didn't know because she can't keep secrets, but everyone (laughs) else knew. And we managed to keep it a secret. It was amazing. But, oh, but where I was going with that is I'm at the beach and Chad's at home and they're doing that backyard remodel and they poured the concrete over the, like on Saturday, cause rain was coming or something. And he's calling me. He's like, here's the problem. I'm like, don't call me. I'm at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I can't fix the problem. Anyway, he's like, oh he's double tailing on the contractors. I'm like, I'm not even there. You know, I said to my husband the other day and I think it hurt his feelings. We were talking about my time at the beach and My husband has this habit of calling me every single day when he leaves work. And then he vents and tells me about his day. And then I said to him, you know, when I'm on the beach, I don't care (laughs) because I'm on the beach. I'm like, you're really intruding on my really great beach day when you call me and tell me about your bad day at work. (laughs) Right. Are you complaining about the way the concrete was poured? Maybe that's a little insensitive, (laughs) but I'm kind of like, you know, I'm happy to listen to you any other day, except for when I'm sitting on the beach in my beach mode. Right. Oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) 
We always start our show with our good news segment, and today's good news story comes via an email from one of our listeners, Lori Gritton. She writes, this is not my good news story, but I thought I would share it as it happened in a town near where I live. As we all know, the last year has been so difficult for so many kids, and especially those graduating, and this was just such an amazing gesture. So the story she submitted is about the graduating class of the Okanagan School District in British Columbia, Canada. Each student was the recipient of a $500 award from a mystery couple who wanted to celebrate these students. There are approximately 2,000 students graduating, which means they contributed nearly $1 million. Isn't that crazy? Like crazy amazing? Each student received a letter from the couple that read, Dear Class of 2021, Congratulations on making it through these last 16 months of an extremely challenging time. We applaud you for overcoming the many obstacles you have faced from online learning, condensed semesters, loss of time with friends, cancellation of sports, and very non-traditional graduation ceremonies and celebrations. We want you to know how proud your community is of each and every one of you for persevering in these unprecedented times and succeeding. As recognition for your efforts, we will be gifting $500 to each grade 12 student in the school district. Please use these funds where you see fit, whether it be put towards your education, tools or personal protective equipment for the trades, or even mental health needs. The letter is then signed off with a statement, wishing you the very best as you turn the page and start this next chapter in your life. Lance and Tammy. So thank you, Lori, for sharing that story with us. I love that. Me too. And so I guess... How many Lance and Tammies are there, really? In- I don't know. I want to know how many people got on Google in Canada and Googled Lance and Tammy. Yeah, really. So maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's not really their names. Maybe maybe not. <laughs> well, maybe that not. is a great story. So, listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life tell us an amazing story, or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. So before we get to the life lessons of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And I am so excited, Sherry, because I'm going to tell about one I haven't talked about before, and that is Branch Basics. Have I talked to you about Branch Basics before? Well, you have, and you told me that you were trying to form a relationship with them. And I actually was on your website, I think, yesterday and saw that you'd added them. So I was so excited that you worked that out. Yes. Well, I'm backstory of this, as I was writing Cleanish, you know, I, I stumbled across a term I'd heard before, greenwashing. And I hadn't really thought about it much. And I just assumed, of course, I'm not a victim of greenwashing. I don't, that does, greenwashing is basically how manufacturers and companies make you think their product is safe and natural and non-toxic using basically meaningless terminology on the label. And so as I was researching, I started looking up some of the products that I thought were safe that I had been using. And I was using the Environmental Working Group app, and I talk about all this in Cleanish, and was shocked to find how I was a victim of greenwashing, and I was fooled. And it just, I couldn't believe it. So I was like, well, I've just really got to change what I'm using. I'd already switched over to, to um, Beauty Counter, but I have to change my cleaning products too. And so I've been looking for a non-toxic, high-quality company, and, and I found Branch Basics, and I reached out to them. And if you go to jenstevens.com slash Branch Basics, you can, you can read more about it. 
and there's a promo code, you can save 15% on a starter kit. But when they, they sent it to me to try, I got it in, in the mail and I'm like, okay, this is not going to be the company. I was like, this is weird because it's like one bottle of concentrate and all these empty bottles and you blend them yourself, mix them with water up to a certain level. And there's one, it's like the non-streak cleaner. And they're like, put in one drop of the concentrate. And I'm like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. This is not going to work. So in I'm your cleaning. head, you're like, I'm cleaning with water. <laughs> this is so stupid. So I was like, okay, fine. But then I was sitting in the kitchen one day and I looked over and I have this story on my website, but it's true. And I was sitting over and looking at my fridge and I have a big old KitchenAid fridge that came with the house. And it's on its last legs, I think, unfortunately, but it's all smudgy all the time. And I could not figure it out. Yeah, stainless steel, but the kind that smudges really easy, the old kind that, you know, you. anyway, I got out this non-street cleaner and I cleaned it and it was like the cleanest it's ever been. So I was, yes, it cleaned it. Like I had been trying stainless steel cleaners and all these different things, trying everything and nothing worked. But this Branch Basics, with one drop of the concentrate, really, really cleaned it. And, you know, I like my cleaning products to have a little scent to them, but I, I learned also how fragrance can be so terrible. But Branch Basics says on their website, you can add a little bit of essential oil that you like to their cleaners. And so that's what I've done. I've added a little bit of essential oil for the different ones. And so I have what I know is a safe cleaning product and it actually works. That's great. I'm going to have to try them out. Well, you'd really do need to try them because I was like, no, this is not going to be the company I partner with until I tried it. And then I was like, okay, this is the one anyway. <laughs> and it's just one concentrate. You just have to get the concentrate again and you never have to like buy all the million things. It's so great. Anyway, jenstevens.com slash branch basics. Check it out. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to talk with Dr. Harley Rotbart a nationally renowned infectious disease specialist, a pediatrician, parenting expert, speaker, and educator for nearly four decades. He is professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Children's Hospital Colorado. He is the author of more than 175 medical and scientific publications, a regular contributor to Parents Magazine, as well as six books. And today he joins us to talk about his latest book called No Regrets Living, a proactive seven-step plan to help others better appreciate what we have in our lives and to take pride in what we've done with our lives. Welcome. Thanks, Sherry. It's nice, nice to join you. We're so glad to have you here. And I kind of got excited when I was reading your bio because I used to work at University of Colorado, Anschutz Medical Campus there, right across from Children's Hospital. Oh, my goodness. When were you here? I lived there from 2010 to 2014. Wow. We definitely overlapped. We probably yeah. walk, walk past each other on the campus. It's a beautiful campus. It is. So I gave you a little brief intro. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about, you know, you, yourself and where you came from, how you got started in really, I mean, you've gone from being a doctor and providing medical care to really taking that to the next level, which I feel like is kind of exceptional. You know, what, what fuels that passion? Thank you. <laughs> I hope I'm at the next level. I have been an evidence-based clinician and scientist for nearly four decades, and my, my day job during all of that time and my career during all of that time was as an infectious disease physician, a virologist, and a researcher. And over that period of time, I spent most of my career observing things that I could not explain. I can't explain what I see under the microscope. 
I can't explain much of what I saw at the patient's bedside. Then there were several events over the course of my career that made me realize that I'm never going to understand everything. And some of those events, I believe, were miraculous by my definition of miraculous, which is something that I can't recreate, something that I can't explain, something that is really remarkable when looked at closely. And that happens uh, in the hospital, but it also happens outside the hospital. And I began my second career as a collector of miracles, if you will. Oh, I love that. That is ju- that that just really gave me goosebumps to hear. Well, it's uh, it, it really has become the focus of my life for the last many years, and uh, it began actually 35 years ago, more almost 40 years ago now, when I was a resident at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia during my pediatric training, and a case occurred there that was so remarkable, so miraculous, that it stuck with me all of these decades. And I began asking colleagues whether they had had similar experiences. And the essays that I asked them to write started coming in. And I put them all together in an earlier book called Miracles We Have Seen, America's Leading Physicians Tell Stories They Can't Forget. And that was groundbreaking for many reasons. And all the proceeds from that book, we donated to the charities that the essayists, my colleagues, uh, recommended. But then the stories kept coming in. And I now have a file full of medical miraculous stories. And then I took to heart what Albert Einstein said. Uh, Albert Einstein said that there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. And the other is as though everything is a miracle. And I... I'm now in that second category as an official collector of miracles. I love that. I all I, I follow that same premise. You know, I, I get excited at everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the beach right now, and they do fireworks every night. And every night, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's fireworks again! You're like, you know, like childlike, childlike enthusiasm. So I love that. Would you share that first miracle that got you excited? Because I'm dying to know what it was. Sherry, have, I bet you are too. Yes. Sure. So I was working in the ICU. When we got the call at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, when we got the call about uh, two young drowning victims who were uh, being brought in, the story was that a three-year-old was playing on the uh, edge of a partially filled swimming pool in the middle of winter and slipped and fell in. And it was too deep for him to stand up, and so he submerged. And his seven-year-old brother, who's going to be the hero of our story, jumped in, pushed his little brother up to the steps so his brother's head was above the water. But the chilly, icy, frozen water ultimately caused the older boy to succumb, and they both fell underneath. They had been yelling for help, and finally uh, EMT arrived. They found both boys unconscious, not breathing, blue, and began resuscitations on the way to the hospital. When the boys arrived in the ICU, the three-year-old regained consciousness pretty quickly. Um, And within a few hours, he was awake and neurologically normal. But our hero, the seven-year-old, was not so fortunate and lingered in a deep coma for weeks, unresponsive. And the parents really kept vigil at his bedside every day. Child had no response. And our habit, our custom as residents, was that when our day's chores were done, we would sit with the kids 
in the ICU and hold their hand and read to them or sing to them. And so I was holding the seven-year-old boy's hand one night, weeks now into his coma. We had already begun discussing organ donation, brain death protocols, end of life, uh, end of life support. And I felt him squeeze my hand. And, wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so just one squeeze. And the next morning, I reported that on rounds, and my colleagues and supervisors all said, it's probably an involuntary muscle spasm, so let's, right. not, let's not make too much of it. But then somebody else felt it. And then the little boy began squeezing hands on demand, not doing anything else, but squeezing hands. And it would be a few, a few days later when he opened his eyes and smiled for the first time with the breathing tube still in place. And uh, a few weeks after that, when he walked out of the hospital on his own power, on his way to a full neurologic recovery, and we all, as we watched him leave, we all cried. And we had, we had cried many times in the ICU over this little boy, but this was cries of joy. And it was a remarkable thing for me. I, I'm very early in my training. I'm struck by how wrong doctors can be, how wrong forecasting can become. And then I wrote that up as an essay 30 years later and circulated it among colleagues of mine and asked them if they had similar stories that they would be willing to share. The responses were actually really interesting. About a third of, of my colleagues wrote back and said, and these are, these are not holy rollers. These are the eminent physicians. They're deans of, and, and department heads of major medical schools. And they wrote back, about a third of them wrote back and said, well, Harley, it's nice to hear from you, but I really don't have a story to share like that. And another third or so wrote back and said, well, that's a great idea. Let me think about it. And I, I rarely heard back from them. But then the final third is the group that was really exciting for me. They wrote back and said, oh my goodness, I've got a story that I have been waiting to tell for years. I can't wait to write this essay. And that's the essence of the beginning of my collection of miracles. So that book is Miracles We Have Seen. Right. I'm going to have to look for that one. That sounds like something that's right up my alley. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. And the, the stories, the essays there all touched upon, not all, but many of them touched upon the interface between science and medicine on the one hand, and faith and belief and religion on the other hand. And these were physicians, all physicians who wrote these essays, but they told the stories of the families, many of whom had some form of faith, some form of prayer. The physicians themselves oftentimes had some form of faith or some form of prayer. But the essays really asked the question, what is the relationship? between hard science, evidence-based science on the one hand, and faith, religion, and belief on the other hand. And that conundrum, that apparent contradiction, was the basis for the book No Regrets Living, which is a follow-up in many ways to the Miracles We Have Seen book, where I do my best to try and reconcile as both a clinician scientist and as a person of faith, I do my best to try and reconcile those two worldviews. So talk about that a little bit, the No Regrets Living, the book that, that you've recently come out with. So that, that came out of the idea, you said, of, of reconciling faith versus, you know, the evidence-based science. Right. So my background, everyone has their own vantage points, their own perspectives. Uh, my background has 
several vantage points that have kind of directed me in trying to reconcile um, the two, space on the one hand and science on the other. First of all, I, I have spent my life uh, as a scientist, uh, as a virologist for that matter. And I have to say, as a virologist for 40 years, I do feel guilty about this pandemic. I should have figured out some way to prevent it before it started, but, but I didn't. So that is a regret, if you will. That's, right. Oh, I can only imagine. Somehow, somehow I managed to not be able to stop a pandemic before it started. But as a, my first vantage point is really as a, a clinician scientist uh, who has seen miracles at the bedside and has read others' stories like that. Second vantage point is that my father was an Auschwitz survivor, a Holocaust survivor. Oh, wow. And how can the son of a person who went through the greatest evil of modern times, how can that son, me, have faith? And I'll out myself here and say, and believe in God, which I do. Right. The third vantage point is six years ago, I had quadruple bypass open heart surgery. And I had the opportunity to look at the world through the eyes of a patient, not just as a physician, and have a chance to really experience the, I'll use the word again, miraculous power of healing that our bodies are imbued with. We really, and, and it's not, you don't have to have open heart surgery. You just need a paper cut uh, to realize the incredible first responders that our bodies all have to heal. And as a physician, we have a responsibility to heal. As a patient, we have the benefit of healing. And in between all of those vantage points came my bumper sticker, which is that, in fact, as an evidence-based physician and scientist, I find everything in the clinic, in the hospital, and for that matter, in nature, in the universe, as actual evidence of something out there that's that's greater than us, that's greater than humans. There has to be. I have looked at it from every which way, and I cannot find another explanation for the universe around us than there being something greater than us. I call that something God because it's an easy term for me to remember. I don't know what that means. I don't have an image of God. I don't picture God as a man or as a woman or as a human. I, I don't have I don't have a a concept of what this greater this greater force is. All I know is that it's out there, and it gives me great comfort because it means I'm not in control of everything. It gives me a sense of humility. I cannot be the be all and end all. And when things happen that are out of my control, that are beyond what I want, either positively or negatively. I have to accept that. I have to accept it because I also have to accept the fact that at night when you look out on the stars, there are 70 billion trillion, that's 10 to the 22, 70 billion trillion stars that we know of in the universe. Right. Wow. How, is, how is that possible if we are all there is? It, it's impossible. That's my evidence and my reconciliation for belief on the one hand and science on the other. That yeah, the the more we look, you know, outside of us or even deep inside of us, the more we realize how very complex everything gets. You know, when we start looking at the way our cells function and the way you know down at the the cellular level, the 
microscopic level. And and I watched some, I can't remember. It was maybe it was the case for Christ or the case for Christianity. It was a um a documentary video. And they talked about how the the cell the the, the machinery that we're able to see inside of our bodies is like is just amazing the way that it operates. It's so sophisticated. Unfathomable. Right. I write in the in the No Regrets Living book about my experience in anatomy lab when I was in medical school. Anatomy lab is like the hurt locker of medical school. It is it is not a pleasant place. It's where cadavers are dissected and um, and organs are explored and veins and arteries are tracked and the optics of anatomy lab are, are pretty awful. We're all doing our best to learn, but at the same time, we can't look past the fact that these were people. And what we're studying is the room reeks of formaldehyde. It's just not a pleasant place. But when you look inside a human body, and then we have the opportunity to do do it later in surgery during our training, when you look inside the human body, you cannot imagine the complexity. And in fact, not only can you not imagine it, there is no way to understand it. I mean, we, we, we label organs, we label arteries and veins, but we don't know how they developed. We don't know how they came to be. It really is, it really is. I, and I'll tell you something that it, it is heretical. I think that viruses are miraculous. Now, in an era of pandemic, you got to say this guy, this guy's <laughs> off the wall. But, but I can't make, and I've been a virologist now for 40 years, I can't make a single virus. I can't make a virus. I don't know how to make a virus. Right. But a virus can infect a human cell and within a matter of a few hours create one million copies of itself, one million more viruses, which then explode the cell and the viruses spread to neighboring cells. And that's why we all feel so miserable when we have the flu or, or COVID. But I can't do that. A virus could do it. I don't understand how the virus does it. I mean, I have mechanisms you know, that I've studied, that I've reported, that I've written about. But, but I, I don't know how a virus originates. I don't know where a virus comes from. A virus is as miraculous to me as a hummingbird, for example. Look outside the, look outside the window. Try and explain anything that you see out the window as something that man, woman, human can create. There's nothing that we can create. A hummingbird flaps its wings 80 times per second, per second. And it can, it does that to be able to hover and feed nectar from plants. It hovers and then it can speed away at 35 miles an hour, dive at 50 miles an hour, and then hover again with its wings flapping 80 times per second. Can I make a hummingbird? Not I, no. I can't make a hummingbird. I can't make a virus. I can't make a whale. I can't make a, a, an ant. Yet whales communicate with each other and ants communicate with each other, just like humans communicate with each other. I, I don't understand any of them. I am Albert Einstein's second category. Everything around Love me, it. Everything <laughs> around me is miraculous. It's so funny, too, though, because I'm, I'm the eternal questioner. I want to know why. How does it work? Why does it work this way? You know, like I want to dissect everything. And somebody, my husband, it drives him crazy because we'll be talking about a subject and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how that works. And I'm immediately researching it. Like I am just, that's just who I am. That's my personality. I want to understand it. I want, I want the facts behind it. Let me tell you how much I struggled with physics in college because I'm like, prove it. 
show it to me. I want to touch it. I want to see it. I want physics is all in your mind, I feel like. And I mean, some people say it's not, but to me, it's so abstract. Well, when you start getting to quantum physics, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> right. I like, I can't wrap my brain around that. And it's so funny because there's me who I want all the answers. And then there's my husband who's like, just accept it. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm you. I am you. I want answers. I just can't find them, but I want answers. So 13.8 billion years ago, something remarkable is said to have happened. And I'm a scientist. I believe in the Big Bang. I believe the Big Bang happened. And on May 20th, 1964, there are two scientists listening to a very powerful audio telescope, and they heard an echo. And that echo was the remnant, and you can still hear it on astronomy websites, that echo, which you, you know where to, which bandwidth to dial in, is still there echoing the Big Bang, which I believe occurred. Now, here's the part that here's the part that I have to believe. Again, I'm a scientist until it's proven otherwise. I believe it. That before the Big Bang, everything in the universe, every molecule, every cell, every chemical, every organic chemical, existed in an infinitesimally small dot that is called a synchronicity or is called a, I can't remember the exact terms the scientists use for this, this dot, which then 13.8 billion years ago, for reasons that no one will ever understand, exploded and resulted in what is still our expanding universe. Now, that universe all existed. Every one of us, every molecule in our body, every molecule in a whale's body and in an ant's body and in a hummingbird's body existed in that incredible, incredibly infinitesimally, unimaginably small space. What happened before that space, we don't know, but it all existed in that space. Why it exploded into the Big Bang, we don't know, but it did. So I understand the science that is trying to explain that. But I also have to reflect on the fact that Hippocrates, centuries ago, had a hypothesis of four humors and four temperaments, which existed for centuries as, as dogma. Everyone believed it. Now we, we chuckle at it. And yet we're supposed to believe in the Big Bang, which I do, until someone laughs at it centuries from now. And, and gives says, us something else. Right. Yeah. And says, are you, are you, are you kidding? That, you, you really believe that? But but I'm like you. I try and find the answers. I just I just can't. We we don't know. We're just there's so much of it is looking at the clues and trying to work backwards from the clues and figure out you know. Yeah. But and, our and, our brains can't even comprehend. But I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm comforted by it because it gives me the opportunity to do what your husband does, and that is to say, well, you know, I just have to accept it because I can't fully understand it. There's a concept in the in the book mathematical concept, and I, there's a graphic that shows it that's called an asymptote. And an asymptote is, I'll try and describe it graphically, it's a curved arc, an upwardly curved arc that reaches close to but never actually touches a horizontal line. So picture that arc, and it gets closer and closer as it's upwardly arcing, and uh, gets closer and closer to the horizontal line. Well, the horizontal line is my concept of total understanding. And that arc is our approach to total understanding. But the arc never quite gets there. It gets closer and closer and closer, but it never quite gets to total understanding. 
we don't know where on that arc we are, but I do know that we will never get the total understanding. Wherever we are on that arc, there's more to understand. There's more that we will not understand. We're never going to get the total understanding. And that is the, the most important key to no regrets living. And, and that is the appreciation of the fact that we are limited and we're limited by our human perspective. We're limited by our three dimensions. We're limited in our ability to understand. And it's okay to accept that. So you have um, in your book, you have a seven step plan. Can you kind of, I don't, I know we don't want to give away the whole <laughs> the whole book, but what could you tell us about that? The, the proactive plan to help us appreciate what we have? Well, the first key is belief. And we've discussed that, that I believe that the most important thing is for people to believe in something greater than themselves. The second key is discovery. And that is discovery of the miracles around us. And I'll go one step further, uh, and this is going to sound like I, I am a holy roller, but it, I'll explain. And that is to discover not just the miracles around us, but the Messiah within us. My concept of the Messiah is, again, it's, it's something I can't fully understand. And the Messiah may come for the first time, may come back again for a second time, may return. But I believe that, that the Messiah will either come or will come again when the messianic sparks within each of us emerge. That is when the good within each of us, when the Messiah quality that we all have inside of us, and that doesn't include shooting people, and it doesn't include, and it doesn't include burning, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't include evil of the kind that my father's family and my father experienced. But when the good quality within us, the messianic quality within us emerges, and all of those sparks join, then I think we will have discovered um, uh, the Messiah. And that spark within us is our challenge uh, to, um, to, to come in touch with. The third key is healing. And that's very important to, to me as a physician. Uh, it, we take an oath uh, to heal. We have to heal others. We have to heal ourselves. But we also have to heal society. And we, ha we have an obligation to heal the world. And we have the capacity to do that. We are, Louis Pasteur called it, the, said the prepared mind, opportunity favors the prepared mind. We have, even though it seems if you read the daily news or listen to the daily news, it's very bleak. I mean, there's, there's very little encouraging stuff um, in the news. But if you look at society over time, if you look at my family, and I'm not, but my family is addicted to the Game of Thrones TV series, and I, I find it abhorrent. And I, I can't watch it. I can't watch it. But historians tell us that medieval history is not far removed from what we're seeing on TV. And we are not in the medieval times any longer. We have made progress as a society. We have healed some of the evil, not all of it by any means, but we have healed some of the evil in the world. We have also managed to overcome many of the diseases in the world. We have healed this pandemic, or at least we're well on the way, we've healed previous pandemics. So we have the capacity to heal. We have the prepared minds with which to heal, but we have the obligation to continue working toward healing the world, particularly healing the world of evil. The fourth key is to appreciate, and that includes not only appreciating the miracles around us, but appreciating the good that happens in our lives. And, and what I write about, what I hope people will try, 
is to spend a few minutes. It doesn't, it doesn't take a full religious service, but take a few minutes every day to reflect on what the last 24 hours has given them reason to be grateful for. And it's remarkable, remarkable how many things change in 24 hours that we didn't even know we were grateful for yesterday. Of course, there are, there are consistent things. We're grateful for health. We're grateful for family. But there are things that happen every single day that unless we pause to give thanks for, to appreciate, we don't we take for granted. We may not notice them. Yeah. Jen and I did an entire episode of this podcast on gratitude and gratitude practice and how it really changes your brain and how it can change your health and, and everything. So yeah, we are, we're big believers in, in, in pausing and taking notice of the things that we're grateful for. Even, even if our lives feel hard every day, there's something to be grateful for. Absolutely. And, and something different today than yesterday. I, it, it, the gratitude evolves and the reasons for gratitude evolve. And, and it, it, it's an important thing. It's an important thing to notice. The sixth key is acceptance. And in acceptance, I ask people to, again, take a leap of faith with me and to accept that there are some things that are meant to be, that are fate. And that brings up a contradiction because, again, I'm evidence-based and I believe that we have freedom of decision, that we have, the, as, as humans, we have the opportunity to make decisions, that we have free will. And yet, I also believe that there are things that are fated and meant to happen. How can that contradiction exist? And that brings us back to contradictions for me are not a problem. I accept contradictions because I'll never understand everything. And yes, I believe humans have free will, but also I believe that we that there are some things that are meant to happen and part of a greater plan. The sixth key is, I may have counted wrong, that was the fifth key. The sixth key is to seek and seeking involves finding purpose in our lives and seeking self-forgiveness. And the most important way to overcome past regrets is to forgive ourselves and to realize that decisions that we made that we wish we wouldn't have made or events that happened that we wish wouldn't have happened, we are not always in control of, but we also have to consider the context in which they occurred. I have regrets, but when I look back at the context of the time of the decisions that I made, I'm able to forgive myself. And I think it's important for everyone to do that. That's huge. Yeah. And the final key is growth and to grow. And that really involves two things. One is looking back and recognizing how far we've already grown, looking at mile markers in our lives that give us credit for the accomplishments that we've made, for the progress that we've made, for the evolution that we've undergone. But it also asks us to, to take risks, to, to do things that may be out of our comfort zone in order to grow further. I, I quote the Tim McGraw song, which I just love, my favorite country music song, and that is uh, Live Like You Are Dying. And it is a, uh, I think that's the key element of human growth. And that is to recognize the song. I don't know, I don't know if all of your listeners are familiar with it, but it speaks of a man who's given a terminal diagnosis. And what does he do with that terminal diagnosis? He lives more vividly. He loves more actively. He expresses gratitude more frequently. And he lives like he's dying. And the wish in the song is, I wish everyone could live like they are dying. And yeah, that song makes me cry every time. I, I, oh, my God. I, oh, my gosh. It's, it's the best. <laughs> 
And so it is. Those are those are the seven keys to wonder and contentment in life and, and no regrets. I could totally see how that would lead lead to no regrets living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said like when I read the little blurb about the book and and stuff, it immediately I got really excited because I feel like Jen and I we I think we try. This is our goal is to live like this every day, and part of the reason we do this podcast is to help people really live their lives to the fullest and live their best lives and to learn how to lay down regrets and to grow every day. And so this, I mean, like you just fit right in with what we do. Well, and you fit right in with what I want everyone <laughs> to do. What I want everyone to do. I mean, you are you are leading us, you are leading your audience to a better life and to a less regretful life. And I'm grateful to you. I speak to during my during my brief pause today for remembering all that I have to be grateful for that I didn't have yesterday. It will be for your podcast and for the work that the two of you are doing. Well, thank you. I love that. Thank you. So tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can find your book. Right. Well, thank you. If uh, they just Google No Regrets Living, it will pop up first. And I have a website. It's hard to remember my name, but it's harleyrothbart.com. But if you just Google No Regrets Living, it pops up on all the sites. It's in in the, all the local bookstores and it's online, no regrets living. And it, I hope that, that people will be grateful when they have a chance to look at that book, grateful for its existence because a lot of heart and soul went into it. And I, uh, the goal was to, in many ways, do what you guys are doing with your podcast. And that is to make people's lives better, happier, less regretful. And it's all about your your mindset and what you choose to focus on. And, you know, the seven things that, that you've outlined here, really, that is a roadmap for having a life where you feel content and you see the miracles and you recognize the good that we all have, even amid, you know, all the craziness of the past, <laughs> you know, still, you know, look for look for the good things that have happened and, and celebrate those. Thank you. And I, I hope that's true. The fact that this book was written during the pandemic, the publisher allowed me to include a significant number of reflections on the pandemic that are offset in shaded boxes within the book as they relate to this, this seven keys for no regrets living. And so it, the, the book is also sort of a diary of the, of the pandemic, which I hope is in our rearview mirror. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Harley, for being with us today. And I know that our listeners will Love hearing more from you and your book. Thank you guys very much. It was a pleasure. Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast, and that is Manta Sleep. For anybody who's not familiar with Manta Sleep, they make sleep masks. They make all kinds of masks, honestly. So as a night shift worker, I have worn sleep masks for quite some time because any amount of light I see, I can't. Fall asleep. I can't shut my brain off. I can't fall asleep. If I wake up and see light, then I'm like instantly up in the afternoon. But even at night, I like to wear a mask because there's all those little just random lights. There's a new light in my room that I cannot oh, get what is of. it? What is well, it? Well, we have a window AC unit and it plugs in at the head of our bed. And there is a little green light on the plug because there's like a use on the plug. You can't cover it up with something like a dot. Well, I don't, I didn't even know it was there because I was wearing my sleep mask. <laughs> However, 
I left it in my bag, which was in my truck, and I was too lazy to go get it. So I was like, it's nighttime. I won't notice it. It'll be fine. I'll go to sleep. And I woke up so many times, and I'm like, what is that light in this room? And why is it glowing under my bed? And I finally crawled under there and found it. So let's just say I have to have a sleep mask to sleep well. And I'm also a side sleeper, and I feel like that makes it like, difficult to find a good sleep mask. I had one that I kind of liked that I was using for about a year, but the elastic band on it was breaking my hair off and the back of my hair was a mess and I was losing my eyelashes. So the Manta sleep mask are little cups that go around your eyes and they are positional. You can move them to fit your face and the shape and size of your face. So they work specifically for you. And I was concerned about light leaking in because that was my experience with cupped sleep masks before, but I do not have that problem. And um, if you're worried about that, they do have a 60-day satisfaction guarantee, so you have nothing to lose by trying it out. I have gone on to get, I have a silk version at home just because I have read, and I'm a little vain, that silk helps prevent wrinkles. So I bought the silk one for home, and then I bought a second mask that I keep in my overnight bag that I take to work with me on the weekends. So I have that one. I've also bought the cool cups that go in your freezer. So if you wake up, you're a little extra puffy, you have a sinus headache, whatever, you take them out of the freezer, put them on your band, you remove your like sleep cups and you put the cool cups on it. I just lay back for 10 or 15 minutes with them on my eyes. It's a good little meditation time. I just really love it. I can't say enough about them. I had friends recommending them to me for months and I just wouldn't try it because I'm a hard sell. And now I'm sold on it. (laughs) Anyway, so if you want to try it out, if you want to help improve your sleep, go to lifelessonscommunity.com forward slash Manta Sleep, or just go to lifelessonscommunity.com and go to the shop with us tab and you'll find a link there. And every purchase you make helps support this podcast. Light really does make such a huge difference. And I didn't even realize how much till I started like eliminating lights. But can I tell you a funny story about the beach house? Mm Mm-hmm. When we were getting cable in it, because you know, we're going to, you know, it's rented right now, actually. But when I was getting ready, getting it ready for renters, I had to get the cable guy to come. And so he's coming to install the cable. And he's like, these televisions in the bedrooms are not the right kind of televisions. They don't have HDMI input. I cannot install the cable. And I'm like, oh, no, let me go to the store real quick. So I had, he let me run to the store because it was a complicated installation. I got these TVs that I thought were going to be just fine. And I brought them in and they worked great. And they have this red light on them. Oh, gosh. So you know what? That just reminded me. Manta Sleep has these little stickers that they sell. You cover lights. Oh, let me tell you. The stickers don't work. Uh-uh. Nope. Don't work. Because I got some little stickers. It doesn't let the remote work. I covered them up. Because we we do the sticker trick at home with things, you know, with it. But you couldn't use the remote. So I just unplug it. <laughs> I'm not watching cable in the bedroom at night anyway. So at the beach house. So I just unplugged the TV. But I was like, why are these televisions so bright? I mean, it's like so bright. It's like a nightlight. I mean, it's crazy bright. I guess I don't understand why the light has to shine all the time. I know. I don't understand why the light has to shine in the night. It makes no sense. I would not have bought those TVs had I known. Okay, TV manufacturers, if you're listening, (laughs) take the light off the TV, please. We don't want lights shining. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) so next we have a segment we call our listener-led lesson it might be a life hack a book recommendation a special recipe a kitchen tip or anything along those lines today's listener-led lesson comes from angie in montana 
She wants to remind listeners to invest in a good food vacuum sealing system, such as a food saver. You can buy the system and the rolls of bags at Walmart or Costco. I think Target has it. Amazon. It will pay for itself over time as you can then buy meat in bulk when it's on sale and portion it out into the right sizes for your family and freeze it. Do you have one, Sherry? I do not, but I've wanted one for a really long time because I used to buy my meat in bulk. And then I would just like, even like ground beef and I would get my food scale and I'd weigh out the perfect, because you can never buy the perfect portion at the store of what you need for, you know, it's like 1.3 pounds or. Yeah. I want two pounds. So I would portion them out and freeze them in zipper, you know, Ziploc bags. They don't stay as good as like when you seal them up like this. Yeah, you're right. Freezer burn or whatever. Uh huh. I think you can actually go to the meat counter and, and say, I want you to portion me exactly one pound or I think you can. I mean, I wouldn't, it would take too long, but I think you can. I feel like you used to be able to do that. I'm oh, can not you sure not do that now? anymore. Oh. Uh, you know, I don't think the meat counters are like they used to be. That's possible. I mean, I could be wrong, but I also get all my meat from Butcher Box pretty much anymore. And it's, it's pre-portioned into one pound segments. So that works. That's, that's better. Yeah. Yes. That's so funny. But yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. So I used to have one when I was using, what is it? The sous vide. Uh-huh. I had a food saver because I was using it to put the food in for sous vide and putting it in the water. But then I got rid of the sous vide. I gave it to a friend because I'm not that kind of cook. I tried to like the sous vide. It's not me. I think it's too many steps for me. It's too, it took forever. They're like, first you put it in the water and then 27 million hours later. I'm like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that wouldn't be for me. Then you had to also then sear it. And people love it. I think there are two types of people in the world. The people who love the sous vide are the people who are like, no. And apparently I'm a no. I'm a very low maintenance cook. Yeah, I just couldn't do it. So I gave it all to my friend. She wanted to try it. And so I'm like, here, have all of it. Because I was cleaning out. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd have kept the food saver. Darn it. Yeah. Yeah, especially because I do like to batch cook. And you, if you batch cook, you can portion it out and then seal them up in the same way. We are not sponsored by Food Saver. We're, we're not. <laughs> we're not. I just do think it sounds like a great life hack, especially if you have a big family. I think so, too. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's quote comes from Stephen in Little Rock. The quote is, I hope you make the best of it. And I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things you never felt before. I hope you meet people with a different point of view. I hope you live a life you're proud of. If you find that you're not, I hope you have the strength to start all over again. And that is by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And Stephen wrote, this quote reminds me that life isn't just something to endure to get through, but something to live to its fullest. Yeah, I think that goes really well with what Harley told us today as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. That life is a miracle and everything is, you know, I'm sitting on the ocean, on the beach, since I'm at the beach, looking at the ocean, watching it come in. I mean, that is a miracle. It really is. The waves, the tides. Mm-hmm. Miracle. I know. I sit there and I watch the waves come in and I think things like, where did they come from? Like, where did this wave, where did it start? How far away did it start traveling to me in this form? I don't know. That's where my brain goes when I'm on the beach. Well, it's it's just a miracle the way it all works and... I don't know. I don't know how it works. How do the tides work? I don't know. I've taught it. We we we, we teach the, the moon and the bulge and, you know, I've drawn the images on the board. 
Do we really know? I don't know. Part of it may still be a miracle. <laughs> it is. I think it's a miracle. And tonight when they do the fireworks again, it will again feel like a miracle. I'm so jealous. Oh, last night they were the best ever. Well, Sherry, I've really enjoyed our discussion today. Yeah, this was a great episode. I hope the listeners enjoy it. I've really enjoyed listening to Dr. Harley talk. Yep. And until next week, talk to you then. 